Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Matt D'Elia is Confused. My guest this week is a very special guest. Uh, I was extremely excited to talk to her. Um, I reached out to her personally because I really, really wanted her to say yes. And I was lucky enough that she did. Her name is Dr. Lara Boroditsky. She is a professor of cognitive science at UCSD. Uh, she's previously been on the faculty at MIT and Stanford, and her research is primarily on the relationships between mind, world, and language, I believe is the way she puts it. Um, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I'm not only a writer who employs language for a living, but I find language, uh, in general to be the source of great confusion and anguish for humans on earth. And that's kind of what the show is all about. So this is a subject, uh, language and linguistics that I was really, um, interested in having an episode about. And Lara was, was really the, the, the one I wanted to talk to the most about it. So, uh, I think it was a great conversation and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Um, what else? Uh, oh, if uh, if you dig the conversation we have, she actually had the most watched TED Talk of 2018, which I just learned after we spoke. And I had already seen the TED Talk, and it's amazing. I don't fucking like TED Talks in general, but hers is spectacular. So so check it out. Her, her studies really genuinely blow my mind. And we get into a lot of them uh, in this episode, uh, just about miscommunication and misunderstanding and how much just one word can make a huge difference in our understanding or misunderstanding of things and, uh, 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 et cetera, et cetera, a lot of stuff like that. So I think this is a really great episode. Um, I think you guys are going to like it. I know I did. Um, thanks again to Lara and thanks for listening. And here is my conversation with Dr. Lara Boroditsky. My name is Lara Boroditsky. I'm a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego. And I work on how the languages we speak shape the way we think. Uh, I'm interested in how humans get to be as smart and sophisticated as we are, how we come to have all these really crazy, complex ideas that we do. And of course, uh, there are 7,000 languages in the world. They're all intricately complex, exquisitely structured. And so my question is, what role do those structures that humans have built into languages play in constructing what we perceive as reality? How much of what we see is really out there and how much of what we see are we seeing through the structure of our language? Lang language is something I think from an early age I was extremely um, aware of the missteps we can, we can make or take in ways that even speaking among members of our own language, we have our own meaning of those words just through our own experience. We've come to understand what words mean. And it kind of was, was always, I was always aware of the fact that I might know what I think I'm saying, but the person I'm talking to has a different idea of even what the same words we both understand are, you know, right, and I think right. that, that almost is, is its own sort of hidden, hidden challenge of, of language 
in the first place, even among members who speak their, the same language. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. George, George Bernard Shaw has this wonderful quote. He says that the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has occurred. Right. Um, we've all had that experience where we think, but I said clearly. Right. <laughs> and right. the other person's like, oh, well, I thought you meant. Right. And uh, it's, you know, even, um, even in longstanding relationships you could know someone for 20 years and after 20 years you realize you've been talking about two very different things (laughs) for a long time yeah totally i I, I also i remember when i was very young i I was i don't remember the exact experience but there was something when i when i first learned that there it was possible for there to be a language that doesn't have a word that i have for my, in my own language that mm. that struck me as i think deeply confusing because to me the world was the world and everything mm-hmm. in it had a label and there was a mm. word for every single possible thing you could do and if there wasn't it's almost like reality sort of collapsed and i think yeah. that was like the first sort of dawning on me of like holy shit people are so so different really and 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 i don't know necessarily yeah everything just because i have the words for the world that I think are well, that are is a very that's a very deep insight that you had early on because yeah, I, uh, it is it is very tempting for us to think that our words are the language that we speak represent reality, and um, often, in fact, people will ask a, a simple question uh, like, "Does Russian have a word for privacy?" Mm. And um, there is uh, a, a sensible way to interpret that question, which would be. Um, is there a word in Russian that can be used in all the same contexts that the English word privacy can be used? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is no, and that's going to be true for almost all languages because languages are very complex and it's very hard to find exact equivalents for all contexts. Right. But what people really mean by that question usually is they say there is such a thing as privacy. There's like some abstract platonic object out in the universe that right. is privacy. English has happens to have identified this object perfectly and given it a word. Mm. And uh, and isn't it weird that Russian would not have identified this object of privacy and named it? So it's perceived as a, you know, we ask those questions about other languages, we perceive it as a lack, where in fact almost no word uh, in any language is going to have an ex- exact equivalent in another language, right. like uh, just in a single lexical item. Like Russian uh, has uh, a word like uh, the word adna, which is uh, a very simple word. It means one feminine mm. <laughs> in right, the nominative right. case. Well, English doesn't have a one feminine in a nominative case, right? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, or English has the word da. There is no da in Russian. That's oh, the wow. most frequent. It's the most frequent word in English. There is no equivalent of it in Russian, and in fact. Almost all languages don't have an equivalent of it because language, most languages that have articles like that have gendered articles. So there would be a, uh, a male version, a female version, maybe sometimes a neuter version, right. but they're not an equivalent of that. And then lots of languages just don't have those definite articles. So, in fact, the most frequent word in English doesn't have equivalents in other languages. Wow. Yeah, that's that's genuinely hard to wrap my head around. Uh, I, I also, just sticking with this theme of when I was young and what confused me about words and languages, the gender thing, because I, my primary language is English, I... I I think English speakers who aren't familiar with this idea, myself included, they think of gender as purely um, 
male female type of thing but that mm-hmm. tell me if i'm wrong but i mean i know you know the answer to this but i is it's not it's not that's not the original meaning of the word isn't that right uh linguistically it was used uh just to, to mean category or kind right and in fact in uh, american english the word gender came to be associated with sex because people didn't want to put the word sex on forms on official form it seemed too prurient mm. too exciting and so when people had to start filling out lots of official forms for the government they thought about what what should be put instead of sex and they chose gender because that was the kind of um more technical term for kind or category uh but then of course it came to be very closely associated with biological sex right um but linguistically the term just means category or kind and so a lot of languages have grammatical gender categories that align with masculine and feminine mm. but they could there could also be for example 16 different grammatical genders where there's one grammatical gender or category that might include tools or weapons and another grammatical category that might include shiny objects mm-hmm. <laughs> another grammatical gender that might include canines right, right so right, it really right. is just a, a technically linguistically it's a technical term that means uh, category grammatical categories got it okay and it 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 makes sense to me that the reason we've come to understand it in as english speakers or at least in america it's based somehow on some puritanical reason that we didn't want to see or read the word sex we had to come up with another way to put that on a form that makes sense right it was yeah. sex was a little too sexy <laughs> right yeah understandably so yeah um uh i i've also heard you talk a bit or a lot about um this idea of metaphor and how it's sort of a foundational means of communicating even when we're not understanding right we're not knowing we're using a metaphor often but really the root of what we're getting at um is based in a metaphor and it's kind of mm-hmm. just like shorthand for to understand yeah. things yeah yeah well so the problem is that we live in an extremely complicated world and we're relatively simple minded humans and so um all of us are trying to make decisions about things where no single human could actually understand the entire system that they're reasoning about to so mm-hmm. take a system like the economy or the climate um you know there is no human on earth that really understands all of the intricacies of the economy all of the levers that can really predict what's going to happen from moment to moment and yet we are called on to make decisions right so uh, of course uh, pr- uh professional politicians policymakers are making decisions but also even um regular civilians are making decisions when we go to vote and decide which policies we prefer mm-hmm. but we're making those decisions based on an extremely limited and complete understanding of the things involved and what metaphors uh help us do and they this is both a, a plus and a minus right. um is they help us wrap our heads around at least a small part of the problem mm-hmm. um they give us an analogy to something that we understand so someone might say we need to have this stimulus package because we need to jump start the economy mm-hmm. well uh if you have a car and <laughs> you've uh had a, a dead battery you know that jump starting can work right. and you know that this short infusion of energy can be exactly the thing to get you going and so it allows you to use this basic everyday knowledge that you have to say okay i understand how a stimulus could help the economy because i understand how jump starting a car helps me get back on the road right um 
But of course, someone else might say, well, and that metaphor only applies if, uh, in fact, the economy, the problem with the economy is that it has a dead battery. Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, but if it's more like a chronically ill patient, then what the economy really needs is long-term care and constant infusions of care and support. And so just wasting it all in one big stimulus package isn't the thing that's going to get us back to health. And now you're talking in a different frame and you're focusing your attention on a very different subset of the problem. You're bringing in new information. And so each particular metaphor makes it easy for you to wrap your head around a particular part of the problem that makes um, a structure for you to think in, but it obscures a whole lot of other information. So it focuses you on some ways of thinking and really hides others. Right. So it can be extremely persuasive because you don't even notice the things that you're not thinking about when you're thinking inside a metaphor. Right. I mean, it makes sense that you you brought up the example of a politician uh, using this kind of language. And I think it uh, as uh, another word to use, which is persuasive, I think that sort of speaks to the positive and negative sides of this, right? It's like they want to deliver it in this soundbite message uh, that is easy for you to understand, but a lot of these things are actually not easy to understand, and, and, and wrapping your head around them in a way that is easy to understand can actually lead you down an incorrect path of understanding. And I think yeah. that to, 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 that's like such a fine line and to think of it through the lens through which you're describing it makes it the, that fine line extremely clear. Whereas I think so often it's actually blurred because we're just living our life. We're just listening to this or that or whatever's happening. And we're understanding the words that we're hearing and we're not really thinking about it in terms of like, well, does that, is that really what that means? Is, am I sort of tunnel visioning this too much? Is there a bigger thing? Do I need to know more to actually understand the whole thing? Yeah. And, you know, no metaphor is correct. They're all just little model ways of thinking about it. And science, a lot of the history of science is a history of analogies or metaphors that get used for a while, lead to a lot of interesting discoveries, and then get discarded. Right. So, for example, the way we thought about the atom, First, it was a solid mass, like a ball, and then uh, it became uh, a bowl of pudding with raisins in it, Mm. and then it became a solar system, and now it's more like a cloud, right? And all of these metaphors actually were extremely useful along the way in Mm. helping us understand more and more about the structure of the atom. So they were extremely useful, even though fundamentally each one of them turned out to be wrong. Right. And so with reasoning about social problems, it's the same thing. There's no metaphor that you could come up with that's exactly right, that captures everything. But uh, they can be useful in different ways, and they can certainly lead you to think about things in one way or another without even noticing that that's what you're doing. Right, right. And often when there is rhetoric that um, is inflammatory, Um, if it's something that's very blatant, like, you know, if you're talking about immigrants and you say, oh, these people are animals, mm-hmm. most people will reject that and say, that's not, we can't, you can't talk about people that way. Right. That's not right. Um, but if you say something like, well, we have people scurrying across the border, <laughs> right? Right. Well, it's harder to reject that outright <laughs> because you right. say, well, you know, it's just a matter of motion. It doesn't sound as wrong, but of course, what kinds of things scurry? There are right. only some kinds of things that scurry. So you've slipped that metaphor in 
and now you've activated all of these ideas about uh, uh, pests, about rodents, about infestations, uh, and those are uh, now floating around in your mind and you didn't have your guard up to reject it because it just kind of snuck in on this metaphor and kind of wrote, wrote in on that little bird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of this book, Subliminal Seduction, that I read a long time ago. It's like about advertising and the and the, the little messages they put in. And while you're looking at the ad, you don't understand that you're thinking about a certain thing. It's kind mm-hmm. of like that. And it's almost it can be used. It's sort of can be used as you're describing in a, in a nefarious way and it's it, it being so hidden makes it even that much more sort of insidious uh, to think of that example is is actually yeah in, in studies that we've done we'll uh, sneak a metaphor in and um, get people to reason about what should be done in a situation and they'll tell us that very different things should be done about, say, crime, depending on whether you talk about it as a beast or a virus. But then we'll ask them, by the way, what was the most persuasive thing to you in making your decision? Mm-hmm. And they go back and they look at the information that they read. And almost no one ever says the metaphor. Right. Almost everyone says the facts. So right. there's some crime statistics in this particular uh uh, paragraph that they read. And so everyone just underlines the numbers. They say, I just, you know, the numbers were the thing that sure. swayed me. We all want to think that we're being so incredibly rational that that's, the, that's what's making our decisions. But in our studies, everyone looked at exactly the same numbers. They just had different metaphors and they came to really different conclusions. So everyone says, I just made a rational decision based on the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not even noticing that they're being swayed by the metaphor. Right. Yeah. That beast virus thing really struck me, that study that you did. Um, can you explain that a little bit, like just from like the, 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 the jump, like the beginning of that? Like, um, sure. Yeah. So um, we have lots of different metaphors for talking about social problems. Uh, for talking about crime, we can sometimes talk about it as a virus that's infecting our cities or plaguing our neighborhoods. There's kind of medical um, infection language. Mm. Um, and then other times we can talk about it more as an attack by a wild animal. So you could say crime is preying on our neighborhoods. Mm. Crime is like a wild beast attacking our neighborhoods. Um, and so in our study, we wondered whether if you talk about crime as a beast, people would be more likely to propose and support um, ways of dealing with crime that are more punitive, more focused on enforcement and punishment, the way that you would deal with a literal beast <laughs> that was attacking your city, mm-hmm. right? So if it's a literal beast, you'd say, well, catch the beast, you know, cage it, kill it, uh, get police out there, simple stuff like that. Right. Whereas if it's a virus, people say, well, you need to first investigate how it's spreading and you need to do something to inoculate the population so that the population is healthy and not going to be receptive to this virus. Uh, So they have solutions that are more systemic and are more kind of reform oriented. And so when we asked people, what would you do about uh, crime when we talked about it as a beast as opposed to a virus? uh, In fact, people came up with different solutions. They, if it was a beast, they would say, we need more police, we mm-hmm. need harsher prison sentences, we you know, basically catch, you know, catch, and, catch and cage the criminals uh, as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. And when we talked about crime as a virus, they were more likely to say, well, um, 
maybe there are economic problems in the community and that's why people are turning to crime. So maybe we need to have economic reform or maybe we need uh, educational reform so that kids uh, are uh, doing better in schools and they're not having free time after school and so on. So they started offering more systemic, more reform-oriented solutions. Right. And what was really surprising to me was just how effective this intervention was um, mm. in our studies. We, at one point, ran a study where we really only changed one word. Uh, so we gave people a paragraph describing the crime situation in, in the city. And just at the beginning, uh, it started either by saying uh, crime is a beast uh, or crime is a virus. Uh, affecting the city mm. of Addison. And then everything else from then on was exactly the same. And just that one word uh, made as uh, uh, made uh, such a big difference in what people wanted to do about crime. And it was uh, the size of the difference was about half of the natural difference between, say, Democrats and Republicans. You know, these days we think that Democrats and Republicans don't agree on anything. They're polar opposites, right? right? So Republicans tend to take more enforcement, punishment-oriented solutions to crime. Uh, and we saw that big difference between Democrats and Republicans in our study. But mm -hmm. we saw that we could reduce half of that difference just by that one-word metaphor sneaking it, in, sneaking it in. Oh, my God. Wow. That is a trip. I mean, that... You know, the idea that the facts matter less or at least on the same level as much as the delivery system of the facts, which is just language, in this case, just a one word, the fact mm -hmm. that that can create such a different response, even when the word is buried. I mean, you're saying it's one word among many. It's yeah. not just crime is a beast, crime is a virus. It's crime is a beast, mm -hmm. dot, 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 crime is a virus, yeah. dot, dot, dot. That's... Yeah. That is it set, it's hard to contend it sets with. Yeah. You off, it sets a frame and sets you off thinking in a particular direction. Right, yeah. There's actually this um, really wonderful old study, um, though it speaks to a, a problem that is um, frustratingly uh, contemporary. But mm. there was a study done in the 90s about um, uh, p peace deals that were being proposed between Israel and Palestine. And uh, both Israeli and Palestinian participants were given the actual proposals that had been made by Israelis or had been made by the Palestinians. Um, and randomly, half the time they were told, oh, here's the Israeli proposal or here's the Palestinian proposal. And what the study found was that the actual proposal didn't matter at all wow. for how people write it. What mattered was whether you called it the Israeli proposal or the Palestinian proposal. So Israelis preferred the proposal that was called the Israeli proposal, uh, even when it was the Palestinian proposal. Wow. Um, but um, even maybe sadder than uh, that was that uh, overall, all of the proposals, regardless of what they were called, the Israeli participants thought all of those proposals were relatively better for Palestine, whereas the Palestinian uh, participants thought all of those proposals were relatively better for Israel. So uh. they, there wasn't a way for them to meet in the middle because where they were starting, they already felt like all of the possible proposals, that already they had already conceded too much. Wow. They were already more than halfway. Um yeah. And so perspective, that's, that's just speaking to your point that what you bring into thinking about content, what you call the proposal, but also what you think about the person you're reasoning about um, is going to color so much the conclusion that you come to. Right. Yeah. It also speaks to the 
it's it almost underscores the idea of tribalism your proneness to agreeing with what you're already maybe going to be liable to agree with regardless of what comes after you know like if it's pre- if it's sold to you as something that this is something we all think mm-hmm. now it's your turn you of the member of this group it's your turn to read the thing that's for us it's yeah. almost like you're already hitting the ground running and it's already you've already folded it in whereas if it's an oppositional yeah. thing you can read it totally differently out of the gate even if it's the exact same thing yeah but you know what this, this is such a normal part of being human in right. the very complex world where we live we constantly have to defer to expertise because we cannot actually know and analyze all of the information around us so Almost no one understands really how their computer works. Almost no one understands how their car works. But you get in your car and you start it and you drive and you assume that someone did the right thing to make it not malfunction, right? And when you go to buy a nice gold ring for your loved one, almost no one in you know modern America knows how themselves they would test whether or not it's really gold. You defer to the experts. You assume, okay, these people are gold dealers, so they must know how to determine whether or not this is in fact gold. Um, And when you think about anything that you do in your normal day, the water that you drink from the tap, everything that you do, you're trusting a set of experts to have figured something out. Mm. You've completely offloaded knowing uh, uh, so, so much of what would be required in your daily life to other humans. That's what allows us to have such an incredibly complex civilization is that all of us are specialists in only a tiny thing. And then we trust others to know, uh, to know everything else. And that's why we, we do um, take such shortcuts when we're arguing about these big political issues, is none of us can understand all of the issues involved individually. And so you have a bias to say, well, generally, I tend to agree with this political party or with this thinker. Right. And so I'm predisposed to just go with whatever it is that they say. Right, right. Yeah. Um, there's a study I've heard you talk about where uh, I'm thinking about just the idea of us sort of like using the basic systems we have in our brain to extrapolate larger ideas. And mm-hmm. it's the, that study uh, with, the st- with the stroke victims uh, yeah. and time passage and all that stuff. I found that really fascinating. If you want to talk about that a little bit. yeah. Sure. So um, our brains evolved for, you know, Doing, doing basic important things like staying alive, um, reproducing, not bu- bumping into furniture, <laughs> you know, like this kind of basic, you know, navigation, uh, uh, feeding, reproduction stuff. Uh, and so we have really great machinery for mm-hmm. vision and motor action and things like that. But then we've ended up in a really short period of time in a not really in a, a you know, the kind of time that you can have meaningful biological evolution, mm-hmm. we've ended up using those brains for radically uh, complex things that could not have been selected for. So we write symphonies, we play chess, we think about imaginary numbers, we uh, compute continuously compounding interest rates. <laughs> right. we, do, we do all this crazy stuff with our brains. Um, and we're doing a machinery that wasn't really selected or evolved for those tasks. Mm-hmm. So we were using machinery that was, you know, maximized for perception and motor action, 
uh, for the purpose of more and more abstract things that aren't really part of our experience. Right. And so uh, an example of that is the way we think about time. Um, in lots and lots of cultures, people think about time as a metaphor from space. So in English, for example, we talk about the best things being ahead of us, the worst things being behind us, uh, where we use words like forward, ahead, front, back to talk about time. Lots of languages do that. Um, and we also uh, lay out time in calendars. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, so we also lay out time in calendars, for example, from, from left to right. So we have earlier events on the left, later events on the right. English speakers also do that in gesture. And uh, one important reason we do that is because of the direction of writing. So if you read from left to right, you're going to lay out time from left to right. Whereas if you read and write from right to left, uh, then uh, you're going to lay out time from right to left. So if you read and write Hebrew or Arabic and uh, uh, read it, read it uh, you're going to lay out time from right to left. Mm. So we wondered, okay, so in all of these cultural artifacts and language, space and time are connected. Are they really so connected in the brain? Mm. Is, it, is the way that you think about time really so intimately tied to space that, for example, if you were to knock out a part of the brain that represented, say, the left side of space, would you also knock out the quote-unquote left side of time? Mm. And so uh, it so happens there is a particular stroke that makes it very hard for people to pay attention to things on the left side of space. So if you have a, a stroke in the right parietal lobe, um, you're uh, likely to end up in a situation where you can't attend to the left side of space. So patients with uh, neglect like this might uh, only eat food on the right side of the plate and you know complain that they're still hungry. You can mm -hmm. turn the plate and they'll be happy to eat the other wow. other food. They might only read words on the right side of the page. They might only draw the right side of an object when trying to make a, a, a drawing. Mm. They might only shave one side of their face or put makeup on one side of their face. And so we wondered if people are having this inability to pay attention to the left side of space, would they also neglect the left side of time? So we told neglect patients about uh, this guy, David, who liked doing some things 10 years ago and like will like doing different things 10 years from now. And these are random things. Like maybe 10 years ago, we said he liked strawberries, but 10 years from now, he liked cherries. Right. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, he liked uh, loafers, and 10 years from now, he liked sneakers, uh, you know, right. uh, that arbitrarily assigned um, things that are associated with the past and the future. And then um, later we tested their their memory. Can you remember things that were associated with David's past or with his, his future? And what we found is um, for control uh, participants and also for stroke patients who don't have neglect, of course, they make some errors, but those errors are symmetrical around the past and future. Mm. But these left neglect patients had a really hard time recalling anything that was associated with the past and when they were asked about those things, they misidentified them as belonging to the futures. They were kind of trying to cram it into the right side of the mental timeline. Oh, wow. So the English timeline goes from left to right, where earlier things are on the left, later things are on the right. And we could just see it, all of this stuff that had 
actually been associated with the past, just kind of being crammed into the right side of the timeline. Um, So that gave us the first uh, real piece of evidence that the way you think about time is intimately dependent on how you think about space, that if you damage a part of the brain that's needed for thinking about the left, you know, a particular part of space, uh, you're also destroying people's ability to think about that t- part of time. Right. And uh, it makes me think about what the implication of that is. It also makes me think of, <clears throat> of Rob, uh, I think it was Robert Sapolsky who I read say something like evolution is not an inventor, it's a tinkerer. And it sort mm-hmm. of speaks to what you're saying, which is that we have, we, we have this basic system and it's sort of we put on top of that more complex ideas, but we're using the basic instrument to sort of deduce that and process it. Um, but what, what are the, what are the implications of that? If, if, if it's, if it's not too much to, to ask to extrapolate something from that, that seems like a really fucking big deal. But to my brain, I'm just like, what that's so, that means so many things to me. I don't even know where to start filing that away. um... Yeah, so we're we're doing amazing things with the limited resources that we have, mm-hmm. but uh, it's really useful to keep in mind that the thing that we're using to think with um, is a very particular kind of machine that was maximized um, or at least optimized for a, a very different set of purposes. Right. So our brains um, are really good for everyday consciousness. They're very good for keeping us alive, mm-hmm. uh, getting us laid, getting us fed. Like that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what they're for. Right. right? And, um, and then all of these other complicated things that we do are, uh, what Darwin, Darwin called acceptations. Uh, they are ways of using that machinery for something new, something different. And if we had different base, base machinery to start with, it may be a lot easier to think about um, a very different set of things or may come up with a very different set of ideas, mm. right? So if you think about a different kind of intelligence, like artificial intelligence and all the different varieties of it, there are so many things that are very easy for human brains to do that are really, really hard for computer intelligence at the moment. And then there are other things that are trivial for computer intelligence and really, really hard for humans because, um, you know, the basic machinery that you're doing those computations on is so different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about inflection because I think that in our time when there's texting and email or such a thing, I find inflection to be on my mind more and more because in a text, there's like you, I've heard, I, I mean, I, when you just send okay in a text without mm-hmm. any punctuation, it's just like, mm-hmm. is this person being a, an asshole or is this person like what, or, or right. you're reading into it and without the right. inflection of the person's voice, you have no idea. It could be a super excited and happy. Okay. It could be a passive aggressive. Okay. You don't know. Yeah. And so sure. much of what it okay. might be. Right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there's no way to know. And the, and I think the, 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 the understanding falls on the reader and it's almost like they're projecting whatever they might suspect, no matter how mm-hmm. wrong that might be, onto that. And I find that to be, obviously, there's more and more ways to communicate now, but I find that to be uh, uh, almost, well, no, a slippery slope because you're, you're, yes, you're communicating, but you very well could be deeply miscommunicating. And when you don't have that person's face in front of you to read it or their voice to listen to it, 
uh-huh. I feel like lost in translation is, is it's sort of like a runaway train. And I, I don't know. I just find myself thinking about this all the time and how important it is. And we're not really necessarily aware of it, how much we're doing so much interpreting when it's not really supposed to be interpreted that way or meant to be. Yeah. Well, you know, we're always doing a lot of interpreting. So it's certainly true that when you're texting, it's a somewhat reduced uh, information stream from, say, in-person conversation. But even an in-person conversation, um, as we talked about earlier, yeah. uh, when a person says something, you think you understand what they said. You right. think you know why they said it. You're um, you're never really just trying to understand the you know the words that they're saying. You're trying to understand the goal of their communication, right. um, and that's actually what like what your brain is trying to construct mm-hmm. is what is their intent, what is their purpose, what do I what do I do next? Right. Um, and we're making that construction out of a lot of beliefs we have about that person, a lot of knowledge that we have about the world. You're never just um, you know processing the words. Like let me let me give you an example a simple conversation like um wife says i'm leaving mm-hmm. husband says who is he <laughs> right um there's nothing in the definition of those individual words or the grammatical constructions that necessitates <laughs> that interaction right but you can understand it because of a whole lot of things you know about the world and human interactions and and it's all of that background knowledge that's coming in to make the interpretation so it's not really so so much what they said, it's your understanding of the situation that they're in and the kinds of things that happen between people. Right. Um, and so we're always in that situation. And the more reduced the information channel, of course, the more po- the more the doors open to incorrect interpretations, incorrect guesses, like really really going astray. Right. Um, at the same time, people have enriched text conversation with some emotional markers, right? So you can add emojis to say, <laughs> okay, smiley face, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or okay, uh, skeptical face right. or eye, eye rolling face. Um, and so that, uh, that will give you a sense of how the person is feeling. Uh, uh, and, you know, people who become very proficient at communi- communicating over text do use those emojis effectively to keep the conversation smooth. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. There are also benefits to having conversations on offline sometimes when you need time to think. Right, yeah. <laughs> you, need, you need time to process what was said and think think either strategically or just calmly about um, what you want to achieve in an interaction. So uh, different different communication modes are, are going to be best for different kinds of uh, interactions. Right. Yeah. I've talked to, <clears throat> that makes me think of, I, I, I've never been on any of these dating apps, which I feel like an old person just saying it like that, any of these dating apps, but I, mm-hmm. I have friends that are on them. On and the they, internets. On the internets. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I have friends who talk about, they talk about how, how used to the sort of, uh, offline interaction that they've had, the non face to face interactions that they've had. And mm-hmm. in person, they panic because they don't have that 30 second or minute window to think about what they're going to say. They actually have to think of it right then and say it and not seem like they're thinking too much about it. And it's so it's totally changed their dynamic out in the world of like mm-hmm. how to 
even interact in this one way. And I find that to be really interesting because what you're saying, it is beneficial. If someone's going to write me an important work email and I don't know exactly how I want to respond right away, it's good to have that little bit of time, you know, but I think it, mm-hmm. it, it getting used to that, it's almost like it, 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 it makes the juggling of how to, how to react and respond depending upon the form of the conversation can become like a lot to juggle. I think sometimes, you know, there there are just different skills. There are different communication modes. There are definitely different skills. And someone could be very come across as very clever and friendly and sweet, uh, in one form and then, right. uh, not have that same, uh, that same feeling in a different form. Right. Also what you were talking about earlier made me think of the common question that people have, which is what's that supposed to mean or something like that. When someone is saying something that is relatively clear, but there's an assumption that there's an underlying meaning to it. And I think what mm-hmm. you said about us always looking for, uh, our brains are always trying to get to the meaning behind the thing and, mm-hmm. and to really understand where the person's coming from. And we're putting so much computation really into that. Uh, I think that there's often this assumption that like, well, what do you really mean as opposed to what you're actually saying, you know? Right. Uh, Well, in almost all interaction, taking the the most literal interpretation of someone said is going to be maladaptive, right? Right, So if I say, can you pass the salt? And you say, (laughs) yes, I'm technically capable of passing the salt. (laughs) We we have not had a successful communication. I am asking you to interpret my intention. Or if we're sitting in a room and I say, boy, it's hot in here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, maybe I'm asking you indirectly to open the window or turn mm-hmm. up the AC, right? Um, we use a lot of, a lot of indirect communication and usually our success as communicators is judged in part by how well, uh, we do at interpreting those indirect signals. Right. Um, yeah. Certainly not just the simple stuff like, can you pass the salt, but, I'm saying something softly as an indirect request. Can you tell that that's what I'm asking you? Um, or uh, is your response going to be, uh, yes, <laughs> it's hot in here. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, then, and then we haven't gotten to what my goal was. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, there's also uh, this term that I have... Uh, I've been aware of it for a while and I, I feel like I understand it because my head is in this space a lot, but there, there's something difficult to grasp about this concept of, of, of qualia. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated by it. If you could sort of define it for me. Sure. Uh, qualia are the, the ways that things feel or taste or smell. There are these internal qualitative experiences and very often language is not very well suited to um, capturing these experiences so they're like the things that we sometimes say are ineffable (laughs) Um, so let me give you an example for Wittgenstein he uh, says you know there's some things that you can uh, easily answer in language like if I ask you what is the uh, height of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, if you know the answer to that, you can just give me an answer, give me a number, mm-hmm. and uh, it's perfectly fine. But if I ask you, uh, what does a clarinet sound like? Mm-hmm. Well, that's really hard to answer in language. And in fact, if you've never heard a clarinet, 
uh, it's going to be very hard for me to give you a description that would allow you to generate the experience of hearing a clarinet in your mind if it's not something you can draw on. Um, right. So uh, that those are those internal qualitative experiences, what things sound like, what they feel like, what they smell like, that are often really, really hard to put in language. The languages do differ in how ex- expressible different senses are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, we used to think that smells are really hard to talk about in general. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then it turns out there are some languages in the world uh, where uh they have really good smell, smell vocabulary. So um, my colleague Asif Amaji has been studying Auslian languages in Malaysia, and they have really wonderfully developed vocabularies of smell terms, and speakers agree on what things smell like, and wow. uh, you know, it just performs so much better than we used to think humans could on right. smell. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the the I think. Uh, to stick with the kid theme, I, I just, I, I, I just remember being distinctly struck with uh, the. I would be, I would wonder so much. I would look at like the, the even just the sky and say, well, that's obviously blue. And mm-hmm. then I know someone else who I would talk to. Obviously, they would be labeling it blue because that's what we call the sky. The sky is blue. Mm-hmm. But I would always wonder if that's really what that person was actually seeing. What I'm seeing, that could be just something totally fucking different to them. You know what yeah, I mean? you can't know what someone else's internal experience is. Uh, that, that internal perceptual experience is entirely private. Um, and even for you, a word like blue um, defines a huge category of right. different hues, right? There are lots and lots of different looking things that you call blue, anything from the lightest blues to the darkest, like indigo gene blue, mm-hmm. um, out towards the greens and out towards the purples, right? right There's right. a huge uh, space of different hues and shades. Um, and so just saying, oh, this is blue is already cutting down your space of experience a huge amount and you really can't know what another person's experience is to give you a sense of that um think about a different species that has different sensors different light sensors than we do Mm. so um let's say a, a butterfly that can see into the ultraviolet spectrum so we humans are able to visually detect um, light that's traveling between, you know, around 450 to 700 nanometers. That's the, those are the wavelengths that we're able to, that we have receptors for in our, in our eyes. But, um, there's energy that's traveling <laughs> at all different, at all different other, right. uh, wavelengths that we have no, uh, receptors for. Right, right. Uh, but other creatures do, right? So, uh, snakes can see into the infrared, butterflies can see into the ultraviolet. And you could be tempted, it's really tempting to ask, well, what does infrared look like to a snake? Or mm. what does uh, ultraviolet right. look like to a butterfly? And the answer is, you know, you can't know what ultraviolet looks like to a butterfly. In fact, you can't know what red looks like to a butterfly. Right, yeah. <laughs> All of that experience is completely unavailable to us. It's entirely private. So it's one of the, one of the most frustrating but also most magical parts of thinking about uh, perceptual experience. Right. And, and as someone who knows about so many different languages and, and how they might shift the way certain people are thinking in certain cultures or certain areas of the world, do you think that there's a, would you say that there's a, um, an under, how, how much are people really 
understanding of this idea that languages are different and they're shaping our thought in different ways from culture to culture. Just in terms of like interactions, are, are, is this something that is cause for greater miscommunication or in your mind are people coming to each other's languages and sort of understanding some of this stuff as in we might not literally not just literally be speaking a different language but we might be coming from totally different places Mm. so the you know if you're monolingual um then you're most likely to believe that your language reflects the true structure of the world and that it's, you know, the right way of thinking about the world. Uh, In fact, for example, if you ask monolingual Italian speakers or monolingual German speakers, why is a chair, the word for chair, masculine or feminine in your language? Or why is the word for sun or moon masculine or feminine? They'll say, well, the language reflects the true genders of the things in the world. Like my language has intuited the true gender <laughs> of course, <laughs> chairs yeah. or the sun. And so people really believe that the structure of their language is telling them something real about the world, even if it seems to us so silly. <laughs> right. Right? Um, and um, once people are exposed to multiple languages, so if you ask bilingual German Italian speakers, for example, the same question, they're much more likely to then say, oh, it's just a formal property of the language. There's not nothing particularly masculine or feminine. They're, you know, they still may act, um, they, may, they still may have masculine or feminine associations, but they at least explicitly will say, yeah, it's not that the sound really is somehow fundamentally new. You know? Right. Um, so being exposed to other languages and cultures certainly helps um free you from the the absolute illusion that you have perceived um that your language has perceived the world exactly right but we're all um we all suffer from this illusion that psychologists call naive realism we're all naive realists that we all kind of believe that we see reality (laughs) that we see the things the way they are And then we're constantly frustrated because other people see things differently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and so there's only, you know, a couple of explanations for why that could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they just haven't been been exposed to the right facts. Mm -hmm. And so then we try to expose them to the right facts to say, oh, it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're ignorant. And I can can fix that. I can (laughs) tell them the right facts. And then you expose them to the right facts, and then they still disagree with you. And then you say, well, now the only possibility is either they're stupid, Mm -hmm. they're not able to absorb the facts that I gave them, process them properly, or they're biased. They're not willing to hear the right facts. Uh, we never, of course, consider that there are many different perspectives to come at, at an issue or that maybe we haven't been exposed to the right facts. So maybe right, that yeah, we, we not, haven't yeah. processed the facts on the other side properly. Uh, or maybe there isn't a right way to think about um, a problem uh, that is extremely complex or there is no possible way to do it with uh, the limited human brain. And so we can only have uh, a multiplicity of incorrect interpretations of the situation right. and argue between lots and lots of different incorrect takes. And in yeah. fact, no one is right. And so, uh, but all of us are really subject to this naive realism. Uh, it's very, very hard to cure ourselves of it. And I find looking at different languages and different cultures and seeing how many different solutions there are to the same problem, how many different ways people have thought about it, 
for me, that's really inspiring because um, it uh, kind of tells me time and time again that the same, the same world, the same physical reality has been perceived and described by human brains in such a rich variety of ways. It's such a testament to yeah. the incredible ingenuity and complexity of the human mind that we can construct not one reality, but thousands of them. Yeah. Um, and so it then also creates the freedom to say, well, uh, I think this way, mm-hmm. but that's likely a very limited way of thinking about it. And they're probably lots of other ways. And the more I talk to other people and try to learn about their perspective, the richer my understanding is likely to be. This brings me back to the the conversation we were having about communication, effectiveness of communication. Often when we think about effective communication, we think about how do I say something clearly so that the idea that I have is perfectly transferred into another mind. Right. And <laughs> that presumes that the idea that you have is already good. Mm. <laughs> and right. that really, really, that's all that's required is for all other people to have your perfect idea. Right. Uh, but we actually live in the world where most of the ideas that we individually have in our heads are incomplete <laughs> or uh, somehow incorrect. And so the best kind of communication is one where you're open to hearing what other people say so that you can learn from them. Um, The the Dalai Lama has this wonderful quote that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking, uh, you're just repeating things that you already know. Mm. And it's when you listen that you're likely to actually learn something new. Um, And so that, (laughs) that may be a much better form of much better uh, way of thinking about communication. It's like, what is it that I can learn from this interaction? Right. I I think so much of it is approached with the, the idea of right and wrong from culture to culture, like who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong, who's doing it most optimally. And it's less, and it should be more about just a perspective, why something might be done another way might not even be better for you, but it certainly could be better for them wherever the fuck they are or whatever their life has been or whatever their culture is it's way more possible, way more likely, in fact, that their way of doing a thing or even saying a thing makes sense for them and not you. And I think it's ha- it's actually hard for people to contend with that because it's so much easier to think in the binary way of is this the right way or is this the wrong way? It's mm-hmm. harder and more complicated to think of, well, it's right for this and that and that, and it's right uh-huh. for that and that and that, and it's less about wrong at all, really, you know? And uh-huh. I think that that's hard for people to come at a thing with uh, when they're coming from only their place, you know? Yeah. What's well, exciting for me to, th- to think about how quickly uh, things in our own culture are changing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you live a few decades, you will certainly be able to look back on things that you thought were okay a couple mm. of decades ago or things that you said that now make you shudder and cringe. And um, that's a really good sign. <laughs> it's yeah. a good sign that we're making, you know, we're negotiating these things. There's conflict, there's turbulence. It doesn't feel good to have that kind of conflict and turbulence. And so people get frustrated by it, but at the same time, it creates incredible progress. And so even even within a culture in a short period of time, you can see how much humans uh, jointly uh, 
try to move things forward and try to move things in directions that they uh, can agree on in the right directions. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking in a way. I think in a way the internet and certainly social media has sort of put the world on top of itself in the sense that it, it, it's constantly looking at itself in all different areas and pockets of the world that it's never really been able to see before. And I think that that initial reaction can appear like chaos or can actually be chaos. But I think mm-hmm. to speak to your point, which you just made, is that seeing it all and being forced to reckon with it is, is, is the ideal is at least to lead to some kind of understanding outside of just your perspective of what that might have been in the first place, you know? And I think that the constant, I feel like it can, it can feel like over inundation sometimes just logging Mm -hmm. into Twitter and seeing the thousands of fucking things happening everywhere in the Mm -hmm. world. And your brain's not ready for that, obviously, because no brain's Mm -hmm. ready for that. But then the idea that that's the negative side, but obviously the positive side at least can be, well, this is an opportunity to actually like work through this shit instead of just rejecting it out of hand, you know? Yeah. Often, often the the greatest relief comes not when you realize someone else is wrong or prove to someone that they're wrong, but when you realize that you yourself are wrong right. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and then the situation magically fixes your itself. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, you're, let's say you're standing behind someone in line at the airport and they um, stepped on your bag and they say, excuse me, sir, you stepped on my bag and they, they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it happens again and again. You say, hey, dude, you, you stepped on my bag. Don't do not do that. Uh-huh. And he doesn't respond in any way. <laughs> now, if this happens three times, you might be like, what an asshole. Right. Like, why <laughs> this guy, like, not only is he stepping on my bag, he's not even acknowledging me. You could have all, you could work yourself up into a complete lather. Right. You could be so, so, so mad about it. Now, if at this moment you realize, oh, this person is deaf. Right. <laughs> so, right. in fact... Uh, they're not trying to be an asshole. They're not disrespecting you. It's not about you at all. It's perfectly fine. Totally, yeah. Well, like, in that moment, all that stress that you have built up in your own mind, like, what you're realizing is that you were wrong about a a whole lot of assumptions that you just made about this person's behavior and their thinking about you and the reasons for why they're doing things. Um, And realizing that you were wrong is (laughs) incredibly freeing. You you don't have to have any of those negative emotions. (laughs) Like, none of that was real. God, that's so true. Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of wanting wanting to be right or not wanting to be wrong. If I'm wrong, I want to know, and I want to know as soon as possible because that's going to, as just as you're saying, it's going to probably alleviate some discomfort with what's happening. You know, if I if 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 what I'm thinking is is right is actually wrong i would rather know that i'm wrong so i can learn the right thing because it's going to get me to being right actually right quicker you know and i and i think that what you're saying sort of speaks to that which is like you can be as mad at that fucking guy all you want but if there's a chance to know there's actually a reason he's actually not an asshole he's not being a dick whatever it is that's Mm -hmm. way better for everyone involved you know and that includes everyone who you're going to come into contact with right after because you're not going to be in bad mood and everybody else and extrapolate that way you know um but yeah we're so stuck on this idea really of being right that I don't know. It's just, I don't, I'm, I would like to be untethered to that as much as I possibly can. Um, clearly, you know, it helps. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lara. This has been super cool. I was really excited to talk to you and I'm really happy we did this. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your time.
Great. Thanks for reaching out. This was a really fun conversation. 